0: About 20 years ago, I was uh, in a church office in Escondido. Actually, about 40 years ago, I'm sorry. It's not 20 years ago, time flies. 40 years ago, 40 years ago, I'm sitting in a church office. I had just, uh, it was kind of the first church that uh, Dick Kaufman and and I and Liz and Lois worked together in, in Escondido. It was called New Life Presbyterian Church. I was sitting in the church office, uh, having just gone through seminary having just gone through uh, exams at presbytery uh, feeling pretty confident of what i was about to embark on in terms of a a career and i was in the office that particular afternoon by myself and the phone rang this was the days before a caller id it was days before cell phones. you just the phone rang and every every ring was an adventure you know in those days you didn't know who was going to be on the other line and so i picked up the phone and I just answered at New Life Church. May I help you? And there was kind of a pause on the other end. Um, and the lady who was on the phone said, Is this a Presbyterian church? And and I said, Yes, it is. And she said, Well, could I then ask you a question? And I said, Sure. And as she as I was saying sure, I was thinking of all the possible range of questions that she might ask me about. Uh, what a Presbyterian church believes or that sort of thing. Um, and I thought, well, bring it on. You know, I'm ready, trained, good to go. Uh, I can handle any question you throw at me uh, over the phone. I'm, You know, it'll be just fine. And what ended up happening is she asked me a question that I was totally flummoxed by initially. But it was a question that I believe sincerely helped to shape my view of ministry, helped me to understand my calling better uh, forty years ago today. I'm gonna tell you what that question was, but not right now, okay? I'm gonna hold you, I'm gonna dangle you in suspense for a little bit while I share some other things, and then i'll I promise that I'll come back to what that question was. It kind of kind of shook me and and framed my ministry my outlook toward ministry the rest of my life. The sermon this morning falls in between two real significant things that we're doing today at Harbor City. We just received new members before our fellowship time and a little bit later, as Annette said, we're going to be electing uh, or voting on officer nominations and advisors and assistants and all those sorts of things. And and, uh, so it's a big day in terms of the community of Harbor City. And I wanted to speak on that topic this morning, the topic of the power of of community. And I wanted to do that from Acts two verses forty-two through 47. Uh, these, uh, these two things that we're doing actually speak directly to two of our, our five values as a church. One is that we live in community, and community is very important to us. But the other, one of the other va- uh, values is that we equip leaders. That's part of what we do as a church. And so we're celebrating those two things today. And what better passage than this one in Acts chapter 2? Let me read it to you as we begin. Uh, Luke says there they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people and the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved the setting for this particular passage in luke 2 is the very beginning of the church after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the middle of chapter one, we see that there are 120 followers of Jesus who are gathered together and they're praying together. They're, they've already kind of established community. But what we find by the end of chapter two is that the number went from 120 to over 3,000 people who were added to the church by the end of chapter two. And you might say, well, what happened between 120 and 3,000? And well, what happened was that the Holy Spirit came with power at Pentecost. That's what happened. Um, but it wasn't just the sheer numbers that the Spirit, um, the impact the Spirit had. Uh, it was also people from every tribe, from every nation, from different cultures, even with different languages. They were brought into the church that day. And the challenge for the church at that point was this. How can we fulfill God's mission and vision for the church when we, when we are so different from one another? And the answer to that is simply we have to establish community, and we have to live in community with one another, and that will set the tone for what we'll, we'll see in terms of God answering our prayer for our mission and our vision for the church. And uh, so we're going to look this morning at why we need to see God's power in that way, and then how it is that we see God's power real quickly. So first of all, why do we need God's power? I would say first reason is because of the external conflict that we all experience at one time or another in our lives. I I love the saying about uh, the Serengeti in Africa that uh, there's a saying that if you're a gazelle and you wake up in the Serengeti, you realize that you have to run faster than the fastest lion or you will be killed. And if you're a lion in the Serengeti, when you wake up, you realize that you have to run faster than the slowest gazelle or you will starve. So whether you're a lion or whether you're a gazelle in the Serengeti, you have to get up running. That's what you have to do every day. There's this external thing that goes on that, that thro- you're thrown into the midst of it and you have to move. You have to, you have to act quickly uh, to survive. And I would say and there's some sense in which that's true of us just as followers of Christ and the external conflict that, that we have. When you wake up each and every day, we need to remind ourselves that we need God's grace we need the gospel. We're not sure what's going to, what is going to confront us that day. What we're in what way we're going to need the gospel and God's grace. But we know that if we just rely on kind of a rugged individualism, uh, that we won't make it because there's no place for that in the church of Jesus Christ. We need the power of community for the external conflict. I think we need it all. Also, secondly, for the internal conflict. Uh, because often the internal conflict that we experience is even more fierce than the external conflict i remember about a year a year and a half ago looking at, at my uh news feed online and there was this clickbait article you know you know what clickbait is it's, it's some headline that that's leads you to think you're going to get some great information and you click on it and and you know usually it's just a bunch of ads or or something like this well that particular day the clickbait headline uh, said something like this uh, scientists discover the common factor in all addictions the common factor in all addictions and I'm thinking to myself what can be common to all addictions is there some little piece of the brain that they've isolated, you know, that you could go in and zap or take some pill to counteract, and and th- and by doing so, rid yourself of the power of addiction in your life. So, of course, I clicked on it. I, got, I said, I got to know what the common factor of all addiction is. Well, the answer was this. The common factor to all addiction was isolation. It was isolation. And it underscores the fact, friends, that if we try to overcome the internal struggles that each of us face, different ones, different, different types of struggles, but if we try on our own uh, to do that, we're almost always going to fail. Ultimately, what the gospel tells us is that Jesus Christ is the answer to our, the thirst of our souls. We're all thirsty people. Jesus Christ is the answer to that. He's really all that we need but here's our problem. We don't know Jesus well enough for him to be all that we need. The gospel wants us to have that relationship. The gospel wants us to be able to know Jesus that well. Um, but we don't know him well enough to realize that that's all we really need. Uh, so what do we do? I think in, in response to that, we often reach out for other, all other kinds of substitutes. We reach out uh, for different relationships, we reach out maybe for different things in life that we can accumulate, different activities that we can get involved in, all in an an attempt to fill the thirst of our souls. And God's desire, I think, for each of us in those areas is to transform those so that they not become things that just become further dead ends in our life, but transform them so that um, we can see those things work in a whole new way. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2 as the believers there begin to establish this new uh, community. And we see God's power at work in some very specific ways. There's four ways that I see here in this passage. The first is God's power depl- is displayed in their community by victory over priorities. Victory over priorities. Here's what I mean by that. When you read this passage and it says that they were they were together, Every day they continued to meet together, they broke bread in their homes, ate together, uh, they met together in the temple courts. We're tempted to think this, friends, we're tempted to think that, well, that's a different day, a different time, different setting. Obviously we can't do all that kind of thing today. And to an extent, there's truth in that. Things are different now than what they were back then, but don't fall into the trap of, of thinking that, that their lives were completely different than ours. What's really going on here for the believers in Acts 2? It's not a matter of their daytimer and trying to rearrange their lives. It's a matter of rearranging their priorities. And victory over priorities in their lives would lead them into a, a more vital relationship with one another. Um, there are legitimate differences, but if we just boil it down to that, we don't see what's really going on. You've probably all heard of the, the analogy or the lesson that that's taught with the bucket that you get and, and the elements that are lined up next to the bucket. And the, the goal is to get every, all of those elements into the bucket. And you've got this one big rock. You have a couple of larger large rocks as well, then some smaller stones, and then finally some sand and, and a, a jug of water. And the idea is how can we get all of that into one bucket? And, and there's ways that you can go about doing that. But here's the bottom line lesson of it all, that if you're going to get all those things into the one bucket, you got to put the big one in first, <laughs> okay? You have to put the big one in first. And if you don't put that big rock in first, if you try to put everything else in and then jam the big rock in, it won't get into the bucket. And I believe that's what's going on in Acts chapter 2 in a very simplistic sense. They've said the big rock here is the community that we have with one another because of what Christ has done for us. We're going to set that as our priority. We're going to make, get the, uh, taking opportunities to be together and worshiping and eating and fellowshipping, we're going to make that a priority. And as a result, they could get everything else in. And that's, that's our, our same challenge, friends. Uh, again, a different setting. It'll look different than what it looked like back then. But what's your big rock in your life? What's the big stone that you need to get into the bucket first? It's seeking God and his kingdom and seeking it in community with others. And as we do that, we'll be able to fit those other things in. Victory over priorities. I think the second thing that we see here is victory over materialism. Victory over materialism. Um, The setting there in Jerusalem was a, a, a mixture of people that had come together for the Feast of Pentecost and hadn't gone home. They became converted, their priorities were changed, they began to meet together, but there were, there were people in that community now, some of whom were, were very poor, uh, others of whom had wealth. And what we're told in this passage is that those who had a lot sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need and it wasn't a forced kind of sharing. It wasn't like they, they had to turn over things in a forced sort of way. They voluntarily did this. Uh, some per, one person has said that <clears throat> whatever you can't give away, you don't possess that, that it possesses you. What you can't give away, you don't possess, it possesses you. And the early believers were they were committed to the fact that they weren't going to be possessed by things, that they were going to see things as a means to the end of serving and loving other people. So they freely gave to those who were in need. And it says that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. That, that word, everything, or that phrase, everything in common, may not strike you Uh, like an interesting historical fact, but it really went much deeper than that. Remember that the author of the book of Acts was Luke, who also wrote the gospel. And Luke was a Hellenist. Luke was a a Greek person, and he was writing in Greek. And the interesting thing is that this phrase, that they had all things in common, is a phrase that appears nowhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else in Scripture does it appear. They had all things in common. Where it does appear is in Hellenistic Greek literature, especially uh, political philosophy literature. And I don't want to go too deep of a dive into this, but one of the great philosophers in the Greek culture, of course, was Plato. He lived 400 years or so before the time of Christ. And he lived in Athens, and there were other famous philosophers that lived There in Athens, Socrates was his teacher and Aristotle was one of his students and Plato was kind of stuck in the middle. And one of the most famous dialogues uh, that Plato wrote was the Republic, where he set forth what he thought would be the ideal community. This is how community, how government, how politics ought to work. And in his ideal community, there were people called philosopher kings who would run everything And and part of the the way that society would be laid out is that they would have all things in common. And that's where this phrase really uh, got a lot of momentum in Greek literature, from Plato speaking ideally of the Republic and saying people would have all things in common. Now, now Plato made one uh, kind of serious mistake for a philosopher. Uh, He wrote the Republic early on in his philosophical career. And that was a mistake because in Syracuse, there were there were people that followed uh, Plato's writings, men by the name of Dion and Dionysius. And at one point they called upon Plato to come to Syracuse and set up the Republic. See, that's what his mistake was. He wrote about this ideal community early. And so he was kind of called on the carpet, Plato, come here and do this, set this up. This is what we want. Plato went to Syracuse and tried to set up a republic and it was a miserable failure. He went back a couple of times to try to correct things and he could never get it right. And so finally, at the, end of his, uh, at the end of his writing career, the last dialogue he wrote was his second political philosophy, it was called The Laws. And a lot of scholars believe that Plato's laws are just sort of the, the practical reality of governing. In other words, the republic is the ideal but the laws are the practical reality. Because what he ran smack into was human selfishness and human sin, he wouldn't put it that way, but but he realized that people weren't gonna share everything in common, so the next best thing would be to have laws that would govern how they would own property and so forth and so on. And so Plato, uh, that phrase of having all things in common would have been something that as Luke wrote as a Hellenist, to other people reading the Greek New Testament and, and uh, picking up on those phrases, when Luke said that they had all things in common, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. It was a reference to the ideal that Plato set forth, that uh, even as great of a philosopher as Plato was, he could never flesh it out because of the sin of humanity. And what Luke is saying is that what what the best of Greek philosophy could not accomplish was accomplished in Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common because the Holy Spirit was there and there was a power of community. And as a result, they they were willing to voluntarily share when they had excess, when they had more than what they needed, they shared it with other people. It's a tremendously significant thing. A tremendously important way of looking at the victory over materialism there in the city of Jerusalem. the third thing would be victory over relationships victory over relationships. I think one of the things that uh, when we when we feel an emptiness in our own souls as we go through life, we reach out in in ways that aren't always helpful and when we reach out to other people, we often reach out to them as frankly, objects that can help serve the needs that we feel we have for ourselves. So we reach out in all sorts of wrong ways. But in Acts 2, they're reaching out in all the right ways, and they made people a a priority. And one of the interesting things about the book of Acts, when you think about all that went on in the early church, I remember preaching about this once, just kind of an overview of the book of Acts, and I thought, well, let's see what Luke says about how the disciples loved one another in the book of Acts, and I went to my concordance to look where love was present in the word in the book of Acts, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I, you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's like four different words in the Greek language for love. I looked them all up. I'm thinking there must be some mistake here, but nothing, 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 nothing. And it dawned on me the reason why is they didn't talk about it. They just did it. They had these relationships that were characterized by love, and they didn't have to spell it out. It was so obvious to everyone uh, that that their friendships, their relationships, their community was grounded in love, that it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was at work. Well, the fourth thing would be what I would call victory over, over darkness. It says there that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and the signs that were performed by the apostles. And we can get we can have a long discussion about what those wonders and signs would have been. Bottom line, they were manifestations of the fact that God was winning in this situation in Acts chapter 2, that the world was beginning to be turned around, and things, the selfishness of people and the short-sightedness of people was beginning to turn a corner, and people were sharing, and, and the power of the gospel was entering into the lives of people, and they were experiencing I believe what Jesus prayed in John 17, when he prayed to the Father and he says, Father, help these people be one. He prayed for the unity of the church on the night that he would end up being betrayed and, and tried and the next day crucified. He prayed for the unity of the church. And he said, Father, if the church is one, if the church dwells in community in a loving way, it will demonstrate to the world that the Father has sent the Son. And so Jesus knew that community would be evangelistic, if we want to use that term. Community would point people to the reality of the gospel and and to the reality of what Jesus had done. But friends, how often do we find that real kind of community in the church? I'm afraid that too often uh, we find that instead of challenging culture, within the church, too often we simply mirror it. We mirror what we see in, in culture. And Acts 2 is holding up the challenge for us to be different. Through this power of the Spirit, we can have victory over priorities and materialism and relationship and darkness. About a year ago, I, was, uh, I got an email from a friend of mine in Santa Fe, who knew that we were coaching church planters. And and he said, hey, Doug, I stumbled on this interview with Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. He said it's an interview with with, uh, Tim Keller, actually a conversation between Tim and Francis Collins. I don't know if you know who Francis Collins is. He's the director of the National Health Institute. Think of Dr. Fauci, Collins is his boss. He's kind of the head of that whole institution. Uh, and, and Francis Collins and Tim Keller were having a discussion at that point about a pandemic that was only a month or two old at the time. And what my friend told me was, he said, there's this interesting thing that Tim Keller says in this, in this uh, dialogue. It was about an hour-long dialogue. He said, he said that every church plant is going to need to be replanted when this pandemic is over. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. He, and this guy, my friend told me, he said, I thought it might be something you could pass along to, to some of the guys that you're coaching. You know, that every church plant is going to need to be replanted after the pandemic is, is over. Well, that did strike my interest. And, and I, I got onto the, I, I took the link and got onto the discussion. And I found, finally found the, the place where my friend was quoting from But what I realized is that he didn't quote it accurately, because that's not what Tim said. What Tim said was something far more drastic. Tim said this, every church will have to be replanted after the pandemic. Every church, not every church plant, but every church. Now, we can kind of experience that, can't we, Uh, when we think back to you know, 14 months ago where, where y'all were as Harbor City and where, where we are now, it's just so much different. And what's ahead of us? What's ahead of us and how will that all come together? And what's going to be different for us, not just uh, coming back together, but, but it's just gonna be a different landscape at that point. And how are we going to proceed forward? And that's the point that Tim was trying to make that we're going to have to rethink a lot of things in the context of what's happened in our culture, in our society over the past year. He went on in that discussion. uh, Francis Collins actually asked him, he said, Tim, you know, you in New York City, where he's a pastor, have been at ground zero for two very crucial events in the last 20 years. The first one was 9-11 when the Twin Towers went down. The second one was this pandemic that they're in. And and Francis Collins asked Tim how he would compare the two and whether the church was being as responsive to the pandemic as they were at the time of 9-11. And of course, Tim talked about how at 9-11, the Sunday after 9-11, I think that happened on a Monday, if I'm not mistaken, early in the week. But by the following Sunday, uh, Tim's church was filled to overflowing. I mean, the, the people just were, were coming to church wanting to get answers to the questions that, that had been raised with what had happened that week there in New York City. But Tim made this interesting uh, observation. He says, now this situation is almost the exact opposite, whereas before we could be there for people to come to, now we can't gather together because the loving thing to do is to keep our distance from one another. And so he told Francis Collins, he says, really, the jury is still out on whether the church will respond to this crisis in the same way that we responded to 9-11. Uh, the jury is still out. And friends, I would say that's, that's what we have to realize, too, that uh, the jury is out on whether the church will be an effective healing agent in the aftermath of the pandemic and everything else we've gone through Uh, in our society and culture this last year, or whether we'll just look like every other aspect of culture and society that is currently so fractured and polarized. Which will it be? Will we be seen as as a body, as a group that demonstrates the power of community, or will we become fractured just like everyone else? And that leads me back to where I started. Let me finish the story that I started earlier so i'm sitting in the office the phone rings i get this call i'm pumped she wants to know if it's a presbyterian church i'm like bring it on whatever you want to ask me i'm ready to answer and here's what she said she said do presbyterians eat meat and i and i kind of i kind of did one of these you know i'm like and the first thing went through my mind is this must be Lois on the phone calling me and yanking, yanking my chain. That's something she would do, you know, do Presbyterians eat meat? And I assured this lady that, yes, they do. And she said, well, that's, that's wonderful to hear because I'm having some people over for dinner tonight. And I know that they attend a Presbyterian church. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to serve them something that they wouldn't be able to eat. Now, there is this thing called Presbyterian. Y'all know what that is? A Presbyterian is one who will eat fish, but no beef, chicken, or pork. That's a Presbyterian. I don't know if she was confused about a Presbyterian and a Presbyterian, or if I, at the time I just thought, wow, this is what we've come down to in society, this is what the church has come down to. that that the burning question is whether we eat meat. And I thought, wow, is it that basic? And I told you it shaped my ministry because I realized at that point that the questions that I thought people ought to be asking aren't the questions that people are going to ask. They're going to ask me if we eat meat. They're going to ask me these questions that to me just sound kind of ignorant and unintelligent, but I've got to, I've got to bend myself um, to realize that we need to meet people where they are. That's kind of a lesson that I began to learn, but it always kind of at me that there was something further to that than what, uh, than that simple lesson. And in a sense that to, to see that as the lesson to be learned is rather condescending on my part, isn't it? Uh, that they're just ignorant and un- uneducated and, and, you know, that's just who we have to deal with in, the, in ministry. That's not, that's not the way that, that anyone should look at it. I was thinking more about this yesterday and last night. I woke up in the middle of the night, and here's what I realized. I realized that there was far more of Christ in, in her naive and uneducated question than there was of Christ in my arrogant and enlightened reply. There was far more of Christ in her question than there was in my response because, you see, what she was trying to do was simply provide a loving setting to engage in community for one evening with some friends. That's all she wanted to do. And my guess is that's what she did that night. She accomplished that. That's the power of community, friends. That's the power that we're called to exhibit. That's the power that we're called to experience. That's the power that we're called upon to provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have met us individually but that in meeting us individually, you've called us and drawn us into community. We thank you that you have given to us one another to meet the needs that we could never meet on our own. I pray, Father, that as we continue to grow here at Harbor City, we would be a church that would understand the power of community, that we would enjoy the power of community, that we'd be strengthened by that, but it would also be something that we offer to others because we realize that it's only through that community that there many people are going to experience the power of Jesus Christ in their lives. We thank you for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name, amen.